0: Do you really think all this is an accident? You think we crashed on this place by coincidence? Especially this place? We were brought here for a purpose, for a reason, all of us. Each one of us was brought here for a reason. Brought here? And who brought us here, Jack? The island. Look, you want to push the button? you doing it yourself
1: if it's not real then what are
0: you doing here jack why did you come back why do you find it so hard to believe why do you find it so easy it's never been easy it's a leap of faith jack two players two sides one is light one is dark i
2: see you in another life brother we have to go back To watch that again.
3: Hello, and welcome to the Storm a Lost Rewatch Podcast. My name is Dave Gonzalez, and after being on the island for forty-four grueling days, what candy would I eat before sneaking out of the food storeroom? I would eat those Reese's peanut butter cups, so none for Claire.
2: My name is Joanna Robinson, and if I were to snatch some candy as I uh, went up into the vents like a badass like Kate, I would grab Red Vines, but not Twizzlers. This is very important. It's a regional thing. Red Vines, always. Twizzlers, never.
0: And I'm Neil Miller, and I come from Twizzlers country, to tell you (laughs) two things. One, if I were in the food closet where Kate ends up, I would take not candy, maybe some real food, but I understand the candy thing. Two, and I want to emphasize that this is the proper pronunciation of this candy, Reese's Pieces. Reese's Pieces. Not Reese's Pieces. Reese's. Wait. Pieces. Is there a a guy
2: named Reese and he's got
0: some pieces (laughs) that he's going to give you?
2: I have a question about. Yes. The Reese's Pieces. Would you? (laughs) That's (laughs) spoken
0: like a true Red Vine person.
2: Would you take a handful? Well, what I love is that people not, I say Reese's pieces because I'm not a monster. But what, what I love about Reese's pieces is people start pronouncing pieces like it's pieces, <laughs> not pieces. <laughs> anyway, the Reese's pieces. Would you take like a bag or would you like grab a, like a fistful of pieces?
0: Oh no, I'm doing the Kate thing. I'm taking multiple bags and stuffing them down <laughs> my pants. Like, cause you notice that not only does she take a candy bar and eat it, but she stuffs like six in her back pocket, which we'll talk about later. Only Kate can apparently find her pockets. (laughs) Yeah,
2: apparently. Um, (laughs) we, uh, I was I was talking to Dave about this when I was uh preparing for the inter to interview our guest this week, and one of the one of the very very backup questions I had was like, what was the Apollo bar made of? Because I know eventually they made an Apollo bar, but um. That one just definitely looks like a power bar to me uh, that does not look it didn't look super appealing. it looked like it looked like a power bar or it looks like as a candy bar one of those
0: crappy candy bars you buy from like um you know how they have like those book sales at school, but they also did like candy sales, but the mm-hmm. candy bars kind of yeah. sucked and it'd be like chalky right and it was like the off brand. I feel like they
2: put a power power bar in Apollo Rapper because Evangeline Lilly, who has a lot of muscles to maintain, was like, "I, I will eat something made of acai berries, but I will not eat a fucking candy bar for you guys. So I don't know. That's the thing about eating on screen. Cause she probably had to take like many bites of whatever that was. Many takes. So, um, yeah,
0: it would suck to have to eat that candy bar like 30 times in a row at
3: work.
2: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, this has been your Apollo bar check-in. <laughs>
3: <laughs> this is of course the podcast that is rewatching the ABC series lost. We've made it up to season two, episode two, a the one where Kate eats a candy bar and other things happen uh if you want to support us you go to patreon.com slash storm of spoilers and there we do some extra bonus content for different contribution levels but of course the one dollar level you get into our slack which is the best place on the internet uh to discuss lost anything else occasionally i just jump in and see what they're talking about with video games because i like to talk about video games but this is a lost podcast So I should tell you how it works. We split our show into two parts. There's a calm section. There's a storm section. The storm section has spoilers beyond season two, episode two. We have some different names for the hatch and things that uh, we could talk about there. But the calm section will be for our people who are rewatching with us, maybe for the first time, and have just discovered Desmond down in the hatch last episode, and are sort of catching up on this hatch in the jungle of mystery, Uh, One more reminder before I get done talking, we have a live show coming up on November 21st in Boulder, Colorado at the Canyon Theater at the Boulder Public Library. I got a plane ticket and everything. Yeah, it's definitely (laughs) happening. Neil has his plane ticket uh we're gonna be talking about star wars by that time we're gonna be going through the first six episodes of lost season two taking a little break for star wars uh because i don't know about you guys but it's already the star wars mania is creeping in at the sides for me uh we got like mandalorian coming up we got Rise of skywalker coming out in december we're gonna celebrate that by talking about the star wars universe uh in starting with our uh the first three uh like main star wars movies not the first three chronological star wars movies at this live show uh
2: (laughs) you know you could just say original trilogy right is the two word phrase you were looking for right
3: that that was the the thing i could have said (laughs) okay but more more words i think that's uh, what we're talking about in Denver. more
2: words better
3: (laughs) (laughs) more words better uh excellent uh Joanna, do we have any reviews for this uh, Lost Rewatch show?
2: Oh, sure do, Dave. Thanks so much for asking. Uh, so, I that wasn't even stalling. I just thought I'd be a little jerk. All right. So, uh <laughs> this <laughs> this review is from Micro Morath The, I feel like I'm missing how the words are supposed to be broken out there. Mara the, Mara the, Mara the
0: punctuation and spaces are
2: important. (laughs) Well, no, not in in the internet age. Yeah. But in iTunes, you don't have that option. Mara That's the true. micro, perhaps. Maybe. Let's see. Okay. <laughs> great hosts, great podcasts, uh, slash, slash, a request for theories, five stars. I love these hosts and hearing their conversations on all things pop culture. I've been meaning to watch Lost for a while now, but always delete it because I couldn't experience it with a fan, experience it with a fandom while it was coming out. Now I can. If possible, I'd love to hear the major theories people had at the time the show aired in the com. I started watching Lost because as a Slack member, I can share theories with other first time watchers. I realize in calm discussion of theories might be difficult because some are true and some are not, but perhaps it could just be stated as a theory of the time and not comment on if it's true or not. I'm not sure exactly how it worked, but since I can't Google theories freely, I'd love it if the host could share what theories people had at the time the episode aired. I think that's a great request and we're going to try to do that. Yeah. A theory corner. Just like theory at the time. And then we'll do our best like poker silence uh face it's it's easy to do a <laughs> poker face on the radio we'll just bleep for like four minutes after. <laughs> we're talking <about> the thing. <laughs> um yeah so you can leave us an itunes review we love it you can go to storm uh, stormpodcast.com com. uh if you want to know sort of like what we're up to what we're doing live shows as they're announced etc um you can email us Hostestormpodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Storm Podcast. Um, I'm going to read a quick email from one of our listeners, uh, who emailed us at host at StormPodcast.com. Um, this is, uh, sort of a, a look back to the finale. Patrick, uh, wrote this in a little late about the season one finale. Um, Uh, Patrick says, I was intending to nominate the appearance and death of arts as the most 2004 thing about the episode. Bear with me here. Not sure if any of you were watching live during season one, but during the week leading up to the finale, ABC was heavily, this is, I like, I could not believe it when I read this email. The audacity on ABC. Okay. Um, ABC was heavily running a promo with a voiceover one of these characters will die. He said to be read, (laughs) he said to be read with your best movie trailer voice. So hopefully I did. Okay. Um, accompanied by long lingering shots of Jack, Kate, Sawyer, Charlie, Locke, and then a quick flash of Arst. My headcanon states that Arst only appeared in Lost so that he could make this promotional montage possible and that the ABC marketing folks ordered the Lost writers to write a disposable character into the last non-finale episode of the season so that they could generate a slight ratings bump for the finale by teasing the death of a major character, the last part being a common network tactic at the time. If this is all true, can you imagine a popular O'Tour led show today being ordered to write a new character for the penultimate episode to be killed. In the finale purely for marketing and promotional purposes, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the internet backlash, blah, blah, blah. So for these admittedly convoluted reasons, I nominate the appearance and death of ours as the most 2004 thing. Thanks Pat. Um, I, I think we know that, that, that that's not the case that Damon Lindelof wrote this character and to have revenge on his, uh, science teacher. Right. Um, His high school science teacher. But, uh, but can you imagine, like, how, if we were a a lost podcast at the time, how much shit we would give the network for their one of the one of these characters will die. Also, I also think in even, maybe even in 2004, we would have been savvy enough to be like, Oh, could it be
3: the new (laughs) guy? Yeah. We definitely would have been five minutes into the episode. See a record of having to pretend like Jon Snow was dead for. <laughs> months.
2: Uh, that guy ain't dead. Okay. So, so thank you so much, Pat, for that email and for, if anyone, uh, I doubt you'll be able to find that promo, but if you can and want to send it over, I would love to watch it. Um, our guest this week, I'm so excited for you to listen to this. Our guest this week, um, is the director of this episode, Stephen Williams. He's a director of many episodes. He also, uh, eventually wound up being, and they get very, uh, particular about these titles. So I hope I got it right. Co executive producer of Lost. And essentially, by the end of the series, he and Jack Bender, who you've heard us talk about a lot, and, um, this other person whose name I can't remember, and right now Gene something, uh, basically ran Hawaii, you know, while the writer, while everyone else we know and love was back in Los Angeles. So, um, Steven was just like a huge, huge part of the show. He also, is working on the T V series uh Watchmen. He directed a bunch of he's an executive producer over there. He directed a bunch of episodes of Watchmen. He directed the best episode of Watchmen, which you will get to uh later in the season and you will be like, Oh my God, this guy's a genius. So like pay attention now but then
0: you'll be like oh my god i already knew that because i listened to this awesome lost podcast that <laughs> his, told me about him
2: yeah his interview is great <laughs> he's so lovely he's from canada so he's got this beautiful way of speaking uh we talked about michael we talked about last minute changes anyway listen to the interview it's really great it's really really good so all due to him thank you so much steven for joining us we talked a little watchman but mostly lost so and that's i'm done all right that'll be coming up after the call which will be coming up after we pause to
3: talk about
2: teeth <laughs> you said teeth for the F. i did <laughs> <laughs> that's really cute <laughs> let's talk about the holidays i know i know it's crazy early to talk about the holidays but trust me you don't want to go through another holiday season taking closed mouth photos while everyone else is grinning ear to ear do you getting a photo ready smile starts now and it's easier than ever with clear aligners from candid
3: candid's aligners can help strengthen your teeth faster than traditional wire braces treatment just takes six months on average an experienced orthodontist who is licensed in your state creates a custom treatment plan then they show you a 3d preview so you can see how your teeth will look after you're done candid's aligners are comfortable removable and completely invisible Candid ships your aligners directly to you, so there's no hassle of going to an orthodontist's office, and Candid costs 65% less than braces. And with each aligner purchased, Candid donates $25 to Smile Train, who brings safe 100% free cleft lip and palate treatment to children around the globe.
0: Whoa, Smile Train. Get your photo-ready smile by the holidays. Go to candidco.com slash storm And use code STORM to get $75 off. That's CandidCO.com slash STORM. You know how to spell STORM. Code STORM for $75 off. CandidCO.com slash STORM. Code. What was that code?
2: STORM.
3: Awesome. STORM. And we're back to talk about the calm. Neil, what happened this week on and slightly off the island? Well, Dave,
0: as you've mentioned, it is episode two, season two, Adrift. This episode was directed, as we've also mentioned, by Stephen Williams. It was written by Stephen Maeda and Leonard Dick. It aired on September 28th, 2005. It takes place on days 44 and 45. I'm guessing most of the water stuff is the night between those two days. Uh, in flashbacks, uh, we learn pretty simply how Michael gave up his rights as Walt's father. Uh, we learn that Susan is a pretty damn good lawyer. And uh, the whole thing's pretty heartbreaking. On the island, we visit uh, with Sawyer and Michael, who we did not visit with last week. In the aftermath of Walt's abductions, one of them screams Walt, the other one screams Jin. There's a lot of screaming. A shark shows up. It's interesting. <laughs> Sawyer takes uh, a bullet out with his bare hand, and then they do some therapy. Uh, elsewhere... Back on the actual island, we learn what happened to John and Kate before Jack showed up at the hatch. They meet Desmond. Kate's get, Kate gets locked in a closet of food, almost gets shot, and definitely was the one who yelled Jack in the background of last week's episode, but you can only really see it if you watch it with the subtitles on. We'll get back to the subtitles here in a second. Uh, we also check in briefly with Charlie's drug addiction, and guess what, guys? I think it's still there. I think it's coming back. Uh, he's really, really thinking about it. The whole episode ends with Michael and Sawyer making it back to the island, finding Jin and then getting cap- captured by mysterious and I say this like this only because that's how certain in the subtitles utters. I, I know. It's just it's U D D E R S in the subtitles.
2: I know, I remember. Uh,
0: who who's the racist here? I think it's the subtitle guy. Anyway, well they
2: were trying like he says he says it one way and then he like further articulate so they like tried it to do like right they're doing like phonetically what
0: he said you're
2: like come on guys (laughs) (laughs) maybe give Uh, us others with like a u U u-t-h-e-r-s that i would have preferred and then o-t-h-e-r-s thanks closed captioning
0: yeah um fun fact of the week Courtesy of Lostpedia, which we talk about a lot, which uh, our calm listeners should not go to if they don't want spoilers, because there's a ton of them in there. Uh, when Michael is talking to his lawyer, we get a very brief glimpse of the World Trade Center towers, which is the most pre-2001 thing of this episode. Uh, also, that means that they would have had to put those in, because this would not have been made until after they were already gone. So they made a conscious choice to have those in there behind Michael. Uh, this week's calm question... And this is a fun one, because I don't think there is a good answer. How did Sawyer know that Russo said the others were coming for the kid? The Raft had already set sail by then.
2: Uh, He watched the finale. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On his Apple Watch. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, Uh, one, Uh, one. probably one of my favorite plot holes is the Sawyer being like, yeah. yeah, she said they were coming for the kid. And immediately you're just like, wait, you weren't there for that.
2: <laughs> but you weren't there. <laughs>
0: uh so yeah that's that's what happened this week
2: that's the last time there will be any kind of funkiness with continuity unlock sure
0: yeah (laughs) don't go looking for any more because it's all buttoned up from here
3: (laughs) everything else is going to be perfect uh where do you guys want to start this week do we want to start in the flashbacks do we want to start out in the ocean do we start back in the hatch or do we want to start in the caves with charlie pretending the statue of the virgin mary might become important later (laughs) on for these survivors (laughs) i want to start
2: I want to start by asking Neil why his recap Mm -hmm. of this episode didn't say, Kate is tied in a pantry in a hatch of mystery.
1: (laughs) Well,
0: I don't want to overuse that. Very good joke.
2: Uh, Okay. Uh, Anyway. uh, Kate has...
0: There's a lot that happens with Kate. I think we should start with the hatch, because I have something to say about that. That's... Uh, I really appreciate uh, our guest this week, Stephen Williams, as a director, the patience that this episode has uh, at the open, especially with the lock stuff, because it, it at first it's a little jarring because we're going back to see stuff that we already know kind of what happened. Uh, we know where Locke ends up. And it's a very brave thing for a show to then double back and tell that story again and keep it compelling. But I just love the sort of steadiness of the the steadiness and the quietness of the scene where Locke is coming down and you see him like take off his shoes. And it's just got this really sort of eerie patience to it that I, I love from like a filmmaking technique, because if you think about where Lost was in season two, they'd come off, you know, all these creating all these great mysteries at the end of season one. And season two has this incredible pace to it that uh, we're going to start to see ramp up. But It was kind of fun to see it, you know, slow down and just sort of walk us back through this thing that happened from a different perspective and keep it interesting because, you know, we get Kate getting the food and the conversation between Locke and Desmond is great. Um, So I think that that is, it's both a brave choice creatively and uh, I think they really nailed it, you know, from a filmmaker, from just the way you sort of ease into the episode is really interesting to me.
3: I, I agree that it's a brave choice, uh, mostly because every one of these plot lines uh, begins with a rehash. We're either, you know, back in the top of the hatch when Locke goes down or back in the water with uh, Michael screaming Waltz. Or in the case of the flashback, back in the Michael the custody agreement, which makes it really frustrating because I like this flashback after having, you know, had the conversation For uh, a previous uh, Michael episode with Matt Patches about trying to rethink how fatherhood works on Lost. This one actually works on me with the exception that I already know that his, you know, Walt's mom, like, has no intention of, like, letting Michael write to Walt. Or, like, when she leaves at the end of this episode, she's gone until, you know, until... uh, Mike has to come and like take over, so it makes it like a little bit uh, I, I guess it's more heart-wrenching, dark. but also more difficult to watch. Just well, knowing that yeah, she's it's dark knowing turn that because
0: we already know about the letters because that was a big thing in that episode, the previous Michael episode. So we know that she like withheld that stuff from Walt for years. So that that makes this whole thing a little bit darker.
2: So I will get into um it a bit well, a lot more with our guest but like the what what's true about this episode a lot of people complain about this episode it actually got like a bunch of negative reviews and it came out and stuff like that because it feels like yeah a retread of stuff we already knew et cetera. Et cetera. i actually really love this episode i don't lo- it's far from the strongest flashback and the reason why is that this was originally supposed to be a sawyer episode this is the tampa job episode and they shot the flashback uh, we, there's actually images of it online that you can see. Um, a couple things. That plot line was basically, and once again, I'll, I'll get into it with, uh, Steven, but that plot was basically repurposed for a later story episode. So you didn't really mish- miss much not having it, but that left them, like, according to Steven, um, I think some people expect that the flashback was bad of Sawyer and that's why they cut it and sort of tried it again later. And it might've been like the network wanted them to have a Sawyer episode. That's what they well, not. Steven this many years later didn't say that, but he did say that like, uh, they felt like it was wrong to focus on Sawyer here when Michael is in anguish about Walt and they felt like it was better to have a Michael flashback. But since they had already shot the Sawyer flashback, they had to shoot this, they had to write and shoot this Michael flashback, extremely fast and so they didn't even so they didn't come up with like a new story for him they're just like well let's just retell part of the story but it will highlight his anguish in the water and it's once you know that it's really interesting watching this episode because there are cut outs to the flashback that you can see how that was originally a sawyer cut out but it goes to a michael flashback um. So I, right? I, I mean,
3: I think in this episode it actually works more in reverse. So when we come back from a Michael flashback, it's more telling that we're coming right. back to Michael.
2: Yeah. So I, I feel like, um, I, I, I wouldn't argue with anyone that this is like one of the weaker flashbacks of the entire series. Uh, they shot most of it over a weekend. Uh, so I'm like kind of forgiving because I'm like, okay, this is the best that they could put together whether or not rooms and uh, outside uh, (laughs) exactly and whether whether or not um but whether or not michael as a character got a short shrift uh you know with this flashback or in general in the show that's something i talked about Stephen, and sort of like our spoilery up so i'll stop like spoiling our own conversation but i just want to like (laughs) well that's the premise of discussing this episode because when you take the flashback out, let's say there was, like, an amazing Michael flashback in this episode or a really fun Sawyer flashback in this episode. This is a much stronger episode because I think the Raft stuff is really good. And the I think Island
0: the Raft, stuff is really The good, Hatch yeah. stuff
2: is really good. And so it's just a flashback that you're just sort of like, meh. But, like, can you take I, that um, out, it's a great episode, I think.
0: Can I defend the flashback for a second? Absolutely. Because I actually, there's a part of the flashback, and I think that that's, it's, that's a pretty safe consensus that this is probably not one of their best flashbacks, but the scene in which he's saying goodbye to little Walt, Ugh. Harold Perrineau just crushes it. Yeah, like, true. like you see, and it's one of those things where there are moments on loss where you're reminded that there are some really good actors on this show. And we get this a lot with John Locke because Terry O'Quinn does it all the time where it's like, Oh yeah, Terry O'Quinn's a really good actor, by the way. Um, here's, here's a scene, but, uh, you don't, I don't think, and I think that's one of the, maybe the things that frustrated people with Michael's character is you had an actor like Harold Perrineau, who's obviously a very good actor. um, and they didn't do enough with him to satisfy people who thought that he should be given more, and which I is probably agree. right. Yeah. Um. Yeah. But I think that he does these things in little moments, like he just straight up crushes this scene, and and then when you hear the story that it was like shot over a weekend, it's like, man, he really brought it for like that one day. And um, I think that his performance in the scene where he's saying goodbye to Little Walt is absolutely heartbreaking you know it's just like you just you see it and i think it it helps that it's the flashback for his anguish on the water but uh either way i think you just you see his whole like him just falling apart basically quietly yeah.
3: so i had a, i had a weird thought when i was watching it and i usually don't like to rewrite television this way especially old television but would it have worked better for you if he was telling sawyer the flashback i don't think so all right I think when they come I,
2: <laughs> well, <you tried. laughs> well I think when they
3: come back and they have that last uh, cutback from the flashback and he's in that moment of anguish on the pontoon thing and he has like his head in his hands and Sawyer finally realizes I think that is when I, I don't know both
0: performances that's
2: that's when Michael really became president um, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well no, no that's I, actually right after sawyer got a chance to watch the flashback and he was like oh oh shit. yeah i get
2: it <laughs> i've been addicted to no, this guy
0: this whole time
2: i don't think telling him is it, because the whole function of lost is that dramatic irony of us knowing more than people on the island often do about this character. You know what I mean? Like, so when people, like, say stuff to Sawyer, like, you just don't know how to love anyone, do you? Which is Michael says in this episode, something like that. And then we're meant to cut to a flashback where we see that's not the case with Sawyer. It's very much not the case. That's the whole dramatic irony point. So I don't think, like, Michael can sit there and be like, "Um, you know, the reason it's so important for me to fight for my boy right now is I didn't fight for him when I needed to. I let him go. You know, and, uh, but we know that that's, you know, th- so like, I think to have him say it is just like ruins the subtlety of, of that loss can sometimes achieve in that way.
3: Fair. I guess there's this part of me that's used to seeing like theater with like two people, you know, stranded on a raft or whatnot. And that's when they start telling each other their backstory so we could like get into it. And I was like, this feels familiar like that. Uh, except, uh, wonderfully shot, uh, water sequences. Uh I don't know I mean what it since we've you know started talking about the production of the show uh just thinking that like they have to have like floating lighting rigs out there and that the guys are like always submerged in the water uh really enjoyed this time out on the water which I don't think holds up for all of Lost's future water sequences uh but definitely uh for the second season started off with a bang. Uh, well
2: some I think you can really tell the difference between when they actually shoot out just beyond the shore which steven did here and does in the future and then sometimes they just have to like probably for safety's sake let's say they have to do like a major storm or something like that um they had they had to shoot in like a pool yeah and i really think you can tell the difference and there are just some of the most beautiful shots in all of lost uh in this episode i sort of like uh t- like Poked Neil a little bit about this one nighttime shot where you see like both of them for like the One Perfect Shot Twitter account. But what's also true is that Neil had already posted a photo from this episode on One Perfect Shot. I remember it. Uh, it is them looking at the island at the end at like sunrise at dawn. And oh, yeah. Watch.
0: I love a good landscape shot.
2: Yeah. Just beautiful <laughs> stuff. Like really gorgeous stuff. They
0: do. And I think they do a great job uh, in the cinematography of making the island look huge which is one of the, like, it's a story point that they sort of just illustrate beautifully with their cinematography, which I right.
3: like. There was a lot of uh, good, I don't think it's, like, straight color theory, but in terms of separating the storylines by, like, different colors this episode, uh, we got a lot of, thanks to probably the Virgin Mary's reds, but the cave came off, you know, with a lot of warm colors. Uh, the hatch is starting to take on, like, this sickly green of, like, artificial light, and, like, as Joanna was pointing out, Night, nighttime blue ocean has a lot of blues and then like white, uh, shine highlights. So it's all, all looking real good. And sharks. I, and sharks.
2: I know. I mean, I know that they, uh, yeah, they had lighting rigs on, on like boats around the actors, but I, it, to me looking at that, um, those shots, it also looks like they sunk light below, uh, the raft, which would make sense. Yeah. But it's if just, they were
0: doing it. They did in a tank, right?
2: No, they did that in the ocean. <laughs> Wait, what? Yes.
0: Whoa. They <laughs> we were
2: out on the ocean for like three nights or something like that. They, wow. Like, when that would you be so see... hard to
0: sink a light in the ocean and make <laughs> it still appear.
2: Well, I think they were, I think they were like just offshore. You know, I mean, okay. not like super far offshore. But, um, yeah, when you see Josh Holloway like shivering, like that dude's really shivering, I think. Because they're out, and it's, like, nighttime, even in Hawaii, and you're, and they're just, like, wet the whole time, so, yeah. It's a great, what see, it's a great episode, part, most of it, most of it is great. sounds
0: like it was a real pain in the ass to make, but it turns out to be a great
2: episode. (laughs) worth
3: it. Uh, So before we get back to the hatch, just rounding out uh, water time, uh, they get back to the island uh, at, a not recognizable part of beach from what I can tell. And Jin comes out and says they're part parts of a female cow running at them uh, from the the island. And we get uh some some shadows of people carrying a, clubs. A, a pretty silly shot.
0: <laughs> a really silly shot.
2: Well
3: like,
2: no 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 matter what you know about the show. I'm just saying they like <laughs> digitally and shadowed those like what would be casting that shadow on those people is my question right. so it looks like kind of silly from that point of view you
0: know <laughs> right because they're not ready for us to know some, some yeah. things yeah um what i do th- what i do like is that they've made a point of calling out sort of how long they had been out there and then how big the island is so it really throws further confusion onto who the hell that is that has jen at the end or that's going to maybe take all three of them, because it's like, we don't know if those are the same, I guess, others that uh, the camp is currently dealing with. We actually, uh, at the time, have no idea uh, like what the hell is going on, and I really love that. I love that it's just, it's not anything we even remotely recognize. Well, it feels completely new.
3: Yeah, at this point, we have uh, what Sawyer presumes are others that have, you know, boats and guns, and then we have these others that are carrying spiked sticks and whatnot and seem to have tied Jen up, uh, with, you know, stuff that's could be found on the island. So it's, I guess they're um, all technically others because they're all not our lossies.
2: They're all not us. Uh, that nice tribalism theme. Um, <laughs> well, and we should mention, I don't think, did we, we, I don't think we'd mentioned that, uh, you know, for commies, right? That we got a shark shot uh with a logo on it that matches the logo that says Dharma on Desmond's jumpsuit and the logo that's on the food in the pantry in the hatchet mystery. So uh that's fun.
0: The shark one I remember okay and uh <laughs> we're gonna have to be careful about this one. Yeah. In the call.
2: But I was I was just very careful just then I think
0: I do remember <laughs> this is one of the first mysteries and people did ask us for theories and stuff. If you pause while the shark is swimming by and you lighten it up like if you brighten i guess you would turn your contrast on your t v up way up so it would white it would white out you can see a darm a logo uh that matches the logos from the uh darm brand food that's in the thingy on the shark it's great i it Wait, was like it what, was like one of my first internet isn't
2: things. it's not what I just said yeah. Oh, okay.
0: This is... Well, I was just... Uh, you had to, but you can't see it if you're just watching the episode. You have to stop I, it Well,
2: yeah, and, and enlighten it. I talked to Stephen about this, um, how this is like a very, 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 very early example of like freeze frame, you know, TiVo, TiVo mm-hmm. moment, right? They already had one with the numbers on the hatch, right? But uh, Dave showed me a behind the scenes feature and one of the guys on the show admitted that they light, they lit the scene brighter than they meant to so i don't even know if you need to turn your contrast up like one of the producers was like we we you don't even need the neil settings (laughs) (laughs) we made we made that brighter than we meant to right dave am i remembering that uh that is
3: correct it's sort of it was an easter egg that they thought would be fun but they didn't mean for it to be as apparently obvious as it is but this is the beginning of one of my favorite parts of lost which is spot that logo you are now on alert if it could pop up on the tail of a shark uh, keep it, <laughs> keep an eye out everywhere else in the island. Uh, and, you know, we don't have to bleep mentions of it, uh, in the future. Uh, but yeah, it's, let's slow go, slow go. go. Let's go down to that, <laughs> that hatch of mystery. Uh, it has like a little dining area with some artificial light. Apparently, uh, Desmond has been down there for a while. He's waiting for a man with a secret snowman password, uh, that lock for a while tries to bluff as being him. Uh, Desmond uh, doesn't uh, realize doesn't fall for it when he, Locke doesn't have the answer to the snowman password and he asks uh, Locke how many of the survivors got sick after Locke explains the plane crash. Uh, as we know, none of them apparently have been sick, but that does seem to line up with both the quarantine on the inside of the hatch and uh, Rousseau's tales of you know some kind of dark territory sickness uh
2: and desmond's uh injections perhaps
3: and desmond's injections perhaps that would make a lot more sense if he's warding off some sort of sickness uh yeah but we get a, a little bit more time in the hatch i don't know if we get to sp- any more answers in the hatch but we do get to see the computer operated that jack didn't get to touch and uh one of the few people that has well no that's not true hurley's talked to charlie and hurley's talked to Jack, but Hurley has not talked to Locke, who has to input the numbers into the computer, and two of our weird story threads continue to uh, connect through characters that don't know they connect yet, uh, which, you know, could be frustrating if they were willfully withholding information, but I find thrilling here in this, like, weird, structured storytelling where every, you know, answer also comes uh, with another mystery, Uh, with our... Boop! 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 (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs>
0: well and i love the questions that we get out of the hatch now how long has desmond been down there why are there two beds
2: a long How'd- time did, food. Did you see food t- what's
0: going on with food
2: <laughs> did you see all the hatch the, the like the day hatch marks on the wall behind him and that yeah when he was like yeah a long well, time <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah the hatch is just a. You know, it's a it's a basket of mystery inside a jungle <laughs>
2: mystery. So I'm a mole mole person. Can I mystery.
0: can I go back to the shark for two seconds? Sure, let's go back to the shark. I just want I just found a fun fact about the shark that I think is important for everyone to know. We're going to be retreading this for the spoiler. shark
3: flashback episode. Right, this is not. <laughs> In a
0: question, in a response to a fan question on the official Lost podcast, which Damon and Lindelof and Carlton Cuse, we'll talk about this more later, they did during what, I think the final season? No. Uh, yes. Or no, for the last season. couple of seasons. Yeah. yeah. They did name the shark Ezra James Sharkington. So that's the shark's name.
3: Excellent. I'm gonna, Yeah. Uh, just, uh, that's a fun fact. That is a fun fact. I, I mean, <laughs> I, 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 the, what does the J stand for, do you think? James. James. Ezra James. James. Sharkatan. Oh, you said James. Not just James. Yeah. Good.
2: Good. Um, yeah, so I mean, just the uh the hatch stuff, uh before you know, before we zip over to the storm, the hatch stuff that I love, I mean, we get the number stuff, that's crazy. Kate's a real badass in this episode. Let's shout out, you know, like we we complain about Kate when she's annoying, uh, or when she's annoyingly caught in something, but like the the reason why so many people like her is that she's incredibly capable in something like this, where she, like, John McClane's her way up into a vent. I wouldn't. I would just, like, like lo- lo- Locke would give I me that knife. i all the
0: candy books. No,
2: Lock <laughs> would give me that knife, and I would never get myself untethered. <laughs> like, why you did you much? put the Pulling knife right in front now. of my pants? <laughs> <laughs> that, that's
3: where um, I can't reach it.
0: I will say this, despite the weirdness of the way John puts that knife into Kate's pants, yes, yeah, which right. is weird, and he could have found a pocket. Um, I love the moment, sort of the moment of truthiness of this sequence where John is like getting him to, is sort of manipulating Desmond to get Kate to be the one to be tied up. And he's sort of giving Kate, He he knows that Kate will do... He, he kind of just knows that Kate's gonna do the thing that he needs maybe to help, you know? And, uh, it's sort of like you see that survivor level teamwork kick in and Kate like immediately recognizes what John wants her to do for the most part. Except I don't think the end is really <laughs> useful, but, um, but yeah, I just, I love how it sort of just kicks into gear. It's like, oh, our team is with our team, you know. Yeah, and uh, Desmond is not on our team.
2: So we should so. say really quickly: um, we um, this uh, episode aired September twenty eighth, two thousand five. The first episode of the official Lost podcast uh, was November eighth, two thousand five. So oh, all right. Very soon they started this podcast, um, and we'll get into it. Like we'll talk about it. Let's talk about when it actually started, because sure. This is a this is I agree with you you Neil. This is like a huge moment in like TV fandom in general. Mm -hmm. Um, Access to creator wise, uh, interaction with fandom wise. So um, that's a big part of everything. But we will get to all that. But yeah, that's all the hat stuff that I think I want to talk about. Um, Y'all, y'all ready for the storm? We could
3: get ready for the storm. Uh, Do we need any moments of uh, non-storm? Falling well, our, don't
2: F- our don't fall down award or don't fall down on the island or don't fall down 2005 whatever you want to go uh goes to uh jen for falling down on the beach as so he's running away from these shadowy <laughs> figures with spiked also
0: gloves. <laughs> uh worth noting no australian accents this week
2: yeah thanks so thank, there's uh, not
0: a bad australian accent winner
2: thank you thank, 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 thank a koala Right. um luckily michael's
0: le- <laughs> michael's soul all their legal stuff happened in america
2: <laughs> we have the leslie ars memorial ironic statement award it goes to michael dawson for saying to teeny 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 little walt look how big you are when of course the actor mal uh malcolm david kelly had a uh, He's very tall, which we saw when Sog- Soggy He had Walt a prepared. massive
0: growth spurt in between Seasons 1 and <laughs> so 2. So
2: tall, they had to kidnap him.
0: Tall, Soggy wall.
2: Tall, Soggy wall. And then, uh, Neil, do you want to introduce our new uh, recurring segment on the podcast? Yes.
0: Yes. It is time for us to tie ourselves to a tree in a jungle of mystery and explore this week's Jungle of Mystery moment. This is going to be great. <laughs> i'm glad that the lack of reaction i'm hoping was laughter
2: oh, <laughs> i didn't no, hear you were anything. Gonna, i thought you were gonna then say what it was oh sure yeah
0: uh the jungle of mystery moment this week is the logo on the shark it's really the logo as dave mentioned uh that that logo uh is one of the great lost MacGuffins. as uh, like you will you will want to keep an eye out for the logo. People immediately seized upon this as a thing. I remember this back in season two. Uh, the logo, very big deal. So the fact that it's on the shark is just fucking weird, but uh, it's a very big deal otherwise. <laughs>
2: So we are no longer doing the most 2004 thing about episode, unless some like egregious thing crops up and then we will talk about it. Uh, right. We are now Eventually,
0: doing- we'll probably get to like a most 2008 thing or something.
2: Maybe, but right now we are doing a jungle of mystery moment uh, is our new thing. You get to hear hear Neil's draw every week. Uh, this week, Jacino Corner actually belongs in the storm. So don't Google what the Jacino track was this episode. Jacino Corner is going in the storm, and that's it. Yeah.
0: Don't do any shenanigans, or you'll have to live through your own boonerol.
2: Yeah, oh. Oh. is it time? Is it time for an interview, Dave?
3: Well, we're going to get to our interview with Stephen Williams right after this word about cats.
2: Okay, those of you who've been following the podcast for a while, like I don't even need to tell you how much I love my cat, uh, who's got many names: Juniper, Junebug. Bug, the intern, all of them. Uh, But by far the worst part about being a cat owner is dealing with the cat litter. It's messy. It's smelly. It's heavy. Can I just say it? Conventional cat litter is outright barbaric. That's why I switched to pretty litter Pretty Litter is Kitty Litter 2.0. It's shipped right to my door in small, lightweight bags that last me the entire month. What am I, Kate Austin? I can't have have these, like, enormous bags of of litter. Oh, my God.
0: Big bags of kitty litter are so freaking heavy.
2: They're really heavy. They're genuinely I remember that from when
0: I was a kid. (laughs) It was terrible. My mom used to make me carry them.
2: Yeah, so no more running to the pet store, storing heavy open bags of cat litter in your closet. Pretty Litter has next-level odor protection. It uses super-absorbent crystals that actually trap and conceal odor and moisture. No smell, no mess. Forget about that dirty clay or compost that's completely gross to clean up. But the best part about kitty litter is it even monitors your cat's health. Pretty Litter changes color to detect underlying illnesses before urgent medical care is needed, saving you money, stress, and potentially your cat's life. Uh, Dave, I know you hate cats, but you also like me and you want me to be happy. So can you tell me how I can get Pretty Litter in my life?
3: Yes, you could do uh, what we all do who love cats and make the switch to Pretty Litter today by visiting prettylitter.com and using the promo code STORM for 20% off your first order. That's prettylitter.com, promo code STORM for 20% off. prettylitter.com, promo code STORM.
2: Um... I want to just really quickly introduce uh, this uh, discussion with the great Stephen Williams. And I just want to say, if you have watched the show, um, but are not a subscriber to our Patreon already, I suggest you sign up because Stephen said some really interesting things about Michael that we can't talk about in the calm, uh, in the storm. He's friends with Harold Paranau. Per- 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 he has some really interesting thoughts about what, uh, how Michael's story goes from here. And uh, I really, really urge you to check it out. I was really um, intrigued and interested by what he had to say about it. Um, but uh, the most of our conversation is here in the calm uh, with the great Stephen Williams talking Lost and a little bit of Watchmen. Uh, spoiler-free Watchmen. Please enjoy.
1: Hey, Joanna. It's Stephen Williams.
2: First thing I want to say is so these are some of the most beautiful shots of lost ever, both at night. And then there's some stuff at like dawn and pre-dawn that is just absolutely like jaw-droppingly gorgeous. But then I can also imagine that filming all that stuff in the water with the swimming, with the raft. And I think you've said as much was a nightmare to film, <laughs> like film on the water like that. So I was just wondering if you, what you can remember about the challenges of, of filming all that raft stuff there.
1: That part I can remember. <laughs> um, so, you know, this may be a strange way to kind of approach answering this question, but uh, so when Spielberg did Jaws, nineteen seventy-five, I want to say, it's one of the few movies, if if not the only movie, that he has gone so insanely, radically uh, over schedule on and over budget on. In part, it was due to mechanical issues, um, with the shark, with Bruce, the giant shark, Right, but, but it was also, uh, because, um, he insisted on shooting, uh, at sea on the water. And there are a few things more challenging in this line of work than shooting on water. I, uh, even though i was aware of that <laughs> because i am uh, a a huge spielberg fan b a somewhat avid student of film in general so i was aware of the pitfalls of trying to put this thing together um you know uh not in a tank uh not with the the various craft attached to a dock but actually like shooting at sea but it felt like the gamble was worth taking for all kinds of reasons um first of all the water just behaves differently when you are at sea secondly the actors more importantly <laughs> the actors behave differently when you're actually at sea mm-hmm. um it's difficult to get equipment out uh i think if memory serves we we literally towed the actors um and and the the crew and equipment out um you know half a mile, maybe even a mile offshore, uh, and we're in in pretty deep water. And um, yeah, it's super challenging because everything moves independently of everything else. So lighting, there's a craft, a separate craft that that, that the lights are on, another craft that the cameras are on, another craft that the actors are on. And none of them are tethered together. None of these three elements are tethered to each other. So they all move independently of each other while they're on the water in in very, very unpredictable ways, Um, depending on the wind and what the water's doing. And uh, it's just, you know, across every vector of measurement, it's challenging and difficult and uh, foolhardy. And yet we insisted on approaching it that way. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I rewatched, Portions of the episode this morning, in preparation for this interview, and I can see the exertions of the actors um, in several of the frames, and it made me feel that I had not uh, put everybody through hell for no for no reason.
2: Yeah, can you uh, can you get specific about? Um, I'm thinking of there's <laughs> there's one shot where uh, you know Josh Holloway as Sawyer has sort of uh pulled pulled Michael up and and they sort of collapse on top of each other and they just look genuinely actually bone tired exhausted um is there other are there other moments that that uh stood out to you
1: for sure um first of all I should I don't think I'm speaking out of turn when I say this but Harold Perrineau who is not only an amazing actor a great collaborator and a good friend of mine uh, is not the most proficient swimmer. <laughs> in fact, in preparation for this episode, we kind of, you know, besieged him to take some rudimentary um, swimming lessons. But he, he, even by the end of that, you know, he he was not, he is not confident in the water. And uh, so it's really kind of, you know, a challenge to, to ask someone who's not confident in the water to be at sea at night uh, where there are, in fact, predators, so we had, you know, um, we had safety divers underwater with um, devices that were designed to keep sharks at bay and any other predatorial species that might live there. But, you know, in addition to trying to stay focused on the task at hand, namely portraying the role of Michael, who's just had his son abducted, yeah. you know, he had to try and concentrate on staying afloat and not actually drowning. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then, you know, they're fully clothed. They're wearing jeans, they're wearing, right, they're, right. Wearing, uh, they're wearing clothing. And so all of that is an additional weight and, you know, is an additional obstacle to buoyancy. So, um, yeah, they, it was just exhausting for them. And the water's cold.
2: Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a shot there's a shot of one of them shivering and I was like that's a real shiver. They're just cold up yeah. there in the water. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah,
1: we had, you know, heating heating pools um waiting for them on shore, but you know, it's still that they, they still spent lots of time drenched and and at night. Yeah. So, um not not comfortable. Now your cushy Hollywood gig.
2: Uh, so I I um I wanted to ask you, you know I, I I interviewed Damon for the season one finale and I was yeah. talking to him about um his collaborative work with his directors with Jack on this one with Nikki on Watchmen with Mimi on Leftovers and you rose up the ranks from, from producer, supervisor, producer, eventually an EP. And by the end of the series, you know, I read an interview where Carlton and Damon were basically like Jack and Steven and Gene like run Hawaii themselves. So I was just wondering, like, I know you've, you've directed on other shows. Can you talk about the difference between being a director and you're an EP on Watchmen, we should say. So like being a director in that more collaborative sense versus just being like a visiting director on a, on another show.
1: As an executive producer or a co-executive producer, um, your, your area of responsibility broadens. So you are responsible for, you know, um, in an ongoing way, the, the comfort of the cast, uh, the comfort of the crew, um, you're there to provide, uh, whatever help or assistance, uh, and clarity you can to, uh, visiting directors. Um, but also just in terms of, I, I think more specifically in terms of the question you asked, um, there's a level of trust that you accumulate with each passing season with your key collaborators and everything starts with what's written on the page. Everything starts with the scripts and, um, I had, in fact, worked with Damon before Lost. This is, like, Watchmen is my third show with Damon now. I had done... Uh,
2: Crossing, Jordan. Crossing Jordan.
1: Crossing <laughs> Jordan, yeah, exactly, yeah, that yeah. Damon had written, which is where we first met, um, then reunited on Lost, and then uh, again on Watchmen. And uh, so... Um, you know, there's just a, the the writing department was in LA for the most part. Every now and then they, uh, Damon or Carlton would make the trek out to Hawaii, but that was relatively infrequent. Uh, so it was really left to Jack and myself and Jean to kind of oversee and, you know, keep the show pointed in the direction that I think we all wanted it to, to, to move in creatively. Uh, so yeah, it's a it's a it's a more comprehensive umbrella kind of um, responsibility that you have when you're a producing director, than as opposed to just a visiting director.
2: Is that does that strike that kind of partnership? Does that strike you as rare from what you've seen in other um, TV breaking relationships?
1: Specifically, and particularly as it pertains, I guess now, uh, you know, with Watchmen, um, the level of of mutual trust between Damon and myself has just deepened and strengthened and um, just gotten more profound. So, yeah, there is something very, very specific about the relationship with Damon. He is just, um, you know, a singular writer uh, mm-hmm. in our medium and uh, with a particular voice. And for whatever reason, his scripts make immediate sense to me. And I am, he and I are generally on a on the same page and in very close sync in terms of what needs to happen to execute those visually. Um,
2: One of my favorite um, conversations we've had around Lost was in in the season one Michael episode when um, we talked to a friend of mine, Matt Patches, who uh, was not a dad when he first watched Lost, but is a dad now. And watching the Michael plot, he's like, I'm utterly destroyed by – You know this this thing that became sort of like a meme, a joke. This like screaming walt into the void. (laughs) Well, you're right. Like it was a joke for so many people, but like then if maybe if you're a parent or dad, especially perhaps, like it become it takes on this absolute horror that like uh, those of us who were too young to know like couldn't get when we were watching. So I was just curious, like what was your connection as as a father shooting shooting this Michael storyline, um, and and all the walt screaming.
1: That is a great question. That is a great question. Um, not only am I a father, but I at the time, I was a father of twin boys. Uh, I still am. They're both, <laughs> I still am a father of All twin right. boys, but, but they're actually young men now. Um, they'll hate that I just call them boys. Um, but at the time, they were boys. So it was the father-son dynamic between Michael and Walt was one that I was very, very familiar with. And you are right, it did become a meme um, <laughs> uh, soft ridicule I would imagine when, went along with that meme, and yet, when I think of that episode and when I think of shooting those scenes, they were really affecting to me because yeah i could I could completely empathetically put myself in uh, michael 's shoes and imagine what would happen if my son was um absented from me, either by virtue of the dissolution of the marriage, um, or, uh, just in a purely more abrupt and violent abduction. And so it feels to me like that, you know, kind of plaintive, screeching, uh, howl into the, into the night, that Michael, um, engaged in, you know, um, just repeating Walt's name over and over again is literally the only thing you could do. And, and in fact would do it, it, it feels, um, it feels true. Uh, it felt true then. It felt, it feels true now. And I I dare say, you know, if we were to hold up a mirror to ourselves at like key critically critical and emotionally defining moments in our lives, we probably would not, um, we probably wouldn't think they were TV worthy either, but, um, but they would be true. So, you know, uh, hence phrases like ugly crying. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, that I imagine ugly crying would probably become a, a meme really fast. And yet I'm sure that, you know, we have all ugly cried at some point right. or another. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, it just felt true. That felt like that's exactly what, what, uh, what he would do. And of course, it was then kind of mirrored um, in a in a way that was both um, both touching and amusing when Sawyer starts calling for Gin. Right. <laughs> you
2: know, And Michael's like, "Oh, I thought we had to save our voice." I see. Call-
1: exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I thought we weren't doing that. I thought we weren't doing that calling people's names. Coloring people's names into the night.
2: Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you, you know, Harold has given some interviews about how much he likes this portion of Michael's story when we see, um, both in the season one episode and in this episode, um, you know, a father, a black father fighting so hard to be, you know, uh, with his son and how that was maybe uh, counter to some of the narratives that we often see in Hollywood of, of black fathers. And I was just wondering um, if you connected to that at all, if you had any thoughts around, you know, these early intentions around Michael.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, yeah, Harold probably would have articulated that Way better than I possibly could, but that, for sure, was um, feathered into those scenes and awareness of that, um, that that kind of notion that is curiously enough, um, from what I can gather and from what I've read and from my own personal experience, is statistically an inaccuracy. This this myth of the absent black father, uh, from what th- There are, in fact, recent studies that suggest that black fathers are um, as much, if not more, engaged than lots of other fathers. Um, so, yeah, just to see that and not kind of contribute to the wealth of pathologizing a paternal relationship um, in terms of black families, um, given that there is already a plethora of that presentation in 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 our media media verse um that was definitely something that we were all aware of at the time and uh yeah, I think Harold's right to, to, to point that out.
2: Well, so an- another thing I wanted to ask you specifically about this episode is, you know, uh, we, we diehard fans already know that this was originally supposed to be a Sawyer episode, that there was the Tampa mm. job sort of storyline that was shot and, and discarded. Um, you know, I might ask you some questions about that in a second, but that means I would imagine then that you have a kind of a tight turnaround in, Pivoting to crafting a Michael flashback and shooting a Michael flashback. So, do you have any recollection of, I don't know, having having to put put that part together rather quickly uh, in your production timeline?
1: I do. Um, there were only a couple of things that I feel um, <laughs> free to talk about as it pertains to that. But yeah, I think that what happened was you're quite right. There was episode. Two two o two. the second episode of season two, was initially conceived as a Sawyer episode. But then at a certain point, we all kind of collectively started talking about not just the material, but the larger story that we were telling. And, uh, you know, the, the the kind of climactic moment of the preceding episode had been about the, you know, abduction of Walt. And it felt, it started to feel um inorganic to us that we would not pick up that thread right I- immediately in the in the in the ensuing uh episode. And so the the bad, that was the bad news. We were like we had we had barked up the wrong tree. The good news was that we were all on the same page about what needed to be done. Yeah, there were a lot of late nights and there were a lot of long days and if memory serves we shot a huge amount of like you know, the Harold, uh, with his soon to be ex-wife and their legal teams and all of that stuff. We shot a lot of that on a weekend and a a, a huge amount of that material, but we all felt like we had a certain kind of wind at our backs while we were doing that, even though we were up against it in terms of meeting schedules and so on, because it felt like it was, we were back on the right track in terms of telling the macro story. So, um... You know if that makes sense.
2: Yeah, there's a. Um, it's funny because there's an out uh, to a flashback line that I think is Michael's. It's something like, uh, "You don't know what it's like to care about someone at all." And I can see how easily that could feed into a Sawyer flashback, but it feeds into his flashback. And I was like, "Oh, right, you guys, right. you guys are so lucky with that. You had that there uh, waiting to feed yeah. you."
1: So yeah. right, right, right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly
2: exactly Um, yeah and then i mean i know that the tampa job is like this is this is footage you guys have never released this is like we put it in the Mm -hmm. vault we're not going to show it um Mm -hmm. but but it seems pretty clear just from the description that exists already floating on the internet about what it's about the fact that it has an actor in common with a later sawyer episode that it got mostly repurposed into a later season two Sawyer episode. Do you feel like that's an accurate characterization?
1: Yeah, I feel like there's, here's what I would say. Um, I don't feel like uh, we cheated the audience or our fans out of any, any narrative information that they, that they have not, now caught up to. You, if memory serves, that episode was really a, a, back, a bit of backstory about Sawyer being a grifter, you know, right. being a hustler, um, which we, fans of the show, are, of course, completely um, aware of and right. cognizant of and familiar with. So it's not like there's something kind of earth-shattering in that material that would change anybody's perspective about either the character or the show if if they were able to view it it's um it's just that that just felt like the wrong beat not the next beat in the in the story that we were trying to tell
2: i think some people and including myself sometimes um have a misconception that you know if a director's name is on the episode they directed every shot of that episode but this episode mm-hmm. shares like overlaps with the previous episode that jack shot um and so i'm wondering you know is there over is there some stuff in here that jack shot and you know you obviously did the heroes work out on the water but you know like how much of an overlap is there from time to time between directors sharing um scenes on the show
1: yeah look that's a that's also a great question i mean. The only way to answer that is kind of boring nuts and bolts of production, financing, scheduling, uh, and so on. So it happens most frequently between producing directors. Like Jack and I would divvy up work in a way that was not necessarily confined to the discrete parameters of an episode. So, for example, if I was directing an episode that was uh, on the water or on a raft and the you know there was an episode on either side of that that also involved same location same actors uh, i would in all likelihood end up amorting the costs and the time allocation for all of that work because it would just be more efficient from a, on a macro level for production um, and that most frequently happened uh, with Jack and I. So, uh, but it happened throughout the rest of the episode, the, the rest of the season. So, or the series, um, I did m- probably ninety nine point nine percent of all the water work that appears in all the seasons of Lost. Mm-hmm. Um, it and uh, I, but yeah, I, I cannot remember. Offhand, how much of a drift was an overlap with stuff that Jack had done for um, Man of Faith, Man of Science? Mm-hmm. But uh, but there may well have been, and it certainly would not be unusual or atypical for him to shoot stuff that wound up in my episode or anybody else's episode, for that matter. And conversely, it's the same for me.
2: I love that you're the water guy. I mean, did you ever sigh in, in like trepidation when you get a script? You're like, oh, look at all this water stuff. It's going to be me again. Back on the <laughs> <laughs> I love
1: being, look, I loved everything about being in Hawaii. Loved okay. everything about being in Hawaii. Loved being in the water. Look, Hawaii has the most amazing uh, group of water specialists who, as a general rule, um, refer to themselves as watermen and I, uh, I apologize for uh, the the gender specificity of that term but I'm rendering it as I have heard it used <laughs> um uh, and th- their ability to those guys have just this insane relationship to to nature in general to wind to water they they it's it's really it's remarkable um I could bore you with a thousand anecdotes of like Literally, you know, there was a guy called Brian Kailanu who was our one of our head water guys, who is from a very, very esteemed uh, surfing family in on the island of Oahu, and he could literally look day or night. Uh, into the sky, into the heavens and at the, at the water and tell you when it was going to rain with a degree of specificity that <laughs> defies the laws of science, what the waves were going to do, how the currents were going to shift, wow. and just being around those guys and osmotically absorbing their relationship to their environment was inspiring on so many levels and humbling on an equal number of levels. So yeah, once the initial sticker shock of like, Oh no, more water work, um, <laughs> <laughs> wore off, it was replaced by an appreciation of what I've just <laughs> mentioned.
2: Um, all right. And so I want, I, speaking of water work, um, there's a, uh, you know, we get a lot of the, you know, I feel free to call it the Dharma logo, even for our newcomer listeners. Cause it says the word Dharma on it, on, uh, on, on, Desmond's jumpsuit, but uh, there's we get a lot of the Dharma logo in the hatch, right? You get it in the pantry, you get it on Desmond, yeah. etc. Um, but so this is a big, this is a big moment for like Lost mythology. But you guys put this little Easter egg in where you get a shark with the Dharma logo on it swimming by, and I know right. that you, I, my understanding is that you meant it as sort of like a quick little Easter egg, and did not think that so many people would notice it or latch onto it. But of course, loss is at the beginning of this like obsessive TV watcher, right. slow everything down sort of right. environment. I know you worked on Westworld, you're working on Watchmen, you are well versed in in these kinds of fans. Did yeah. was that like your the first time you were really aware that people are going to freeze frame every moment of your episodes to be looking for things?
1: A hundred percent. And it became increasingly Apparent that every single thing we did was going to be scrutinized, and beyond that, that meaning, sometimes intended, sometimes unintended, was going to be <laughs> right. imparted to every facet of every image. And, uh, but yeah, in the early going, in the early stages, we were, uh, taken somewhat unawares by you know just the 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 degree of attention to the minutia within the frames and thereafter had to be you know uh as vigilant as we possibly could but i'm sure we missed stuff as 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 even even in that environment but yeah that was um that was quite revelatory for sure
2: well then, what what power does that confer to you as like a an on the scene uh, producer director? Uh, you know, maybe Damon and Carlton aren't even there, and you're deciding. I don't know if you're one or your production designer is deciding what books are in the background of a shot, and then all of a sudden you have lost fans reading those books because maybe there will be meaning in them for what the show
1: means. No, we thought about it a lot, and we talked about it a lot, and. Um in most cases, those th- there was nothing certainly around books specifically around books right but uh, but the same is true for tons of uh, you know other kind of artifacts that appear in the frame um, We talked about uh, that relentlessly, and they were in most, if not all cases specifically chosen for the way in which their their content or their form refracted. Uh, and reflected the meaning um, of the narr- of, of the particular story that we were trying to tell or the character or the moment that we were trying to tease out or um, illuminate. So, yeah, those were chosen consciously, and we were thrilled when people actually started reading those books.
2: <laughs> I feel like I would abuse that power and just put in a book that I think is really good and people should read. And,
1: and, you know? <laughs> that, that had nothing to do with love. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. They, they,
2: you know, the fans should really read <laughs> this one. I'll just shove it in there and, and we'll see if they pick it up. So um. that,
1: that, yeah. Well, that lends itself to all kinds of potential um, abuse. Right. You could like, if you were a writer yourself, you could like engage in a wanton act of self-promotion by putting your own book in there.
2: Um, Oh, why didn't more people do that for sure <laughs> 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 or you're like your old your other your your other work your movies should be in there something like that. <laughs> right
1: right exactly exactly
2: <laughs> all right um and and then let me let me finish up and and thank you again for your time i really appreciate it um let me at l- all. let me finish up with a few washman questions for you um i'm curious uh you know i asked damon a similar question but i'm curious what thematically you you feel- asked damon
1: about washman <laughs> <laughs> <Huh>.
2: <laughs> not, not <laughs> who knew? Um, but I uh, I just asked him about um, thematically what he feels like links, you know, Lost to, to Watchmen. I, I also threw in leftovers there, but since you didn't work on that, I'm just w- wondering, you know, what you think, what are the preoccupations of loss that you see visited again in Watchmen?
1: Wow. Um, I think Damon has you know I, I i don't mean to be evasive or um not you know I, I don't mean to not answer your question but i feel like damon a is not only the best person to answer that question <laughs> i think that the answer to that question that i have uh heard him offer uh is the best one and okay. um i i feel like i have nothing to add i i i i will i will say only this, which is not in fact an answer to your question, but is tangentially related to it. Sure. In some of the early reviews of Watchmen, people have said, you know, uh, it's good. It's a good thing that you know Damon worked on Lost because he's familiar with the flashback structure, and that serves him well he- here with Watchmen. And I just think it's kind of interesting and funny because it's really the opposite way around, as he himself has frequently said that it is the structure of Watchmen, the the flashback chapter by chapter. Uh, in the original graphic novel that informed him his structural choices or many of his structural choices when he came, when it came time to, uh, to write Lost. Mm. So um, yeah. the cross-pollination between those two at the level of form and structure and construction of uh, an overarching narrative is, uh, is pretty clear. Um, as to thematics, um, there is no person better suited to answer that question than Mr. Lindelof.
2: Great, then I will refer any listeners to an earlier episode of this podcast. Um, and <laughs> yeah, perfect. I, I, I endorse that. <laughs> um, and then um, I you know when Damon approached you to work on Watchmen, what uh, what if any connection did you already have to the source material, and what about the project itself, in a in a way that people who haven't seen um many episodes yet. Uh, can safely listen to excited you about working on it?
1: You know, I had never read Watchmen before, never. I was familiar with it, obviously, as a title. It's in the zeitgeist. Uh, I I had a passing familiarity with it, but I had never read it. So the first thing I did was uh, I I immersed myself in, in the graphic novel and discovered much to my surprised that it was justifiably praised in the way that it is. It's so incredibly dense and rich and uh, brave and um, deep and layered. And I could go on and on and on. It's just such an amazing piece of work, both at the level of, you know, illustration, visual visual presentation and um just textually scribally written um so that was the first thing uh and then i became interested to see how what the iteration that damon had in mind of this material how he was going to utilize this material because i was in addition to being aware of the graphic novel i was aware of the fact that Zack snyder had done this very you know uh faithful uh Cinematic rendering of this mm-hmm. uh, of the, the the source material. Um, uh, so I then read the pilot, and once I read the pilot script, it became clear to me what he how he was going to remix this material, and um, what the stakes were thematically. And um, that became you know in, it, amazingly. Intriguing, intimidating, foreboding, <laughs> but intriguing. <laughs> um, yeah. And, you know, at the center, it was always him and my faith in his unique ability to tell stories for this medium and to write for this medium. I mean, he really is a unique voice. I, 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 you know, it sounds like um, sycophancy, but it's. It's there for, you know, it's, it's, um, it's really true. His, his voice is unique. It's singular. And I had faith that that was a journey that, uh, as potentially dangerous and ridden with pitfalls, uh, it could be, it was, it was the right time to get out of our collective comfort zones in with this material and in this way. And, um, and that sense of trepidation never left us throughout the entire making of this thing that that the almost 2 years um that sense of uh of terror <laughs> never left us um and i should not even be invoking the the past tense at this stage we still live with a daily sense of um knowing why we made the choices that we did but still you know, just hopeful, hopeful that, um, those choices will be appreciated for what they were because they were all made consciously and, uh, hopefully with, um, the right impulse.
2: Alright, now is the time of the show where we thank the folks that make it possible, the folks who get to listen to all of our bonus content and go watch movies with us. We're about to watch the movie Hocus Pocus. By the time you heard this, we will have already watched it with our Patreon subscribers like Josh Kaluza, Lex Gernon, Ryan James, Emma Maltz, Alex Bondano, Jamie, Violaine, Emily, Kelly Donahue, Sean Hammack, Abby Ademchek, Michael Weir, Melissa Shippy, Dahlia Marin, or Marin, Michael Mora, Lewis Walker, Adam Barnum, Sean Patrick Marks, Claudia Davis, Chip Mims, and Annette Monary. Thank you guys so much.
3: And I would also like to thank these people Whose names I will probably mispronounce But uh, as always, if you jump in the Slack And give us a pronunciation request In the Small Council channel, we'll take care of it for you But here we go Thank you very much And Hedge, <laughs> Hedge uh, Julie Mahoney Brian Ohm M- Martha Petroszewski Will Wallace, Seth Harper, Vic Kenny Malone, Cecilia Nis- Nilsson, A. Will Hannah, Will Neville Tone-Kristen-Laganay, uh, I'm going to s- s- assume it's French, Skip Bujanig. <laughs> Michael Caswell, James Barda Kathy Jones, Norman Thompson, Zim, Kat Stromberger-Perez, and Tatiana V. Thank you very much. Guys, guess what?
0: I have a list as well, but I am probably going to mess some of these up. Uh, these are the folks I would like to thank. Lori Carmichael Hal, David McGillivray, Caroline of the North, Mark Harper, Priscilla Walton, Jenna Paul, Amy, Jackie Pawlowski, David Matheson, Andrew, Stephanie Jenner, Kaylee Hicks, Shane Yap, David Adams, David Moran, AJ yeah, cabbage. cabbage. Yeah, there we
2: go.
0: Yeah, Cabbage. cabbage. <laughs> uh, it's missing a B, otherwise it would be Cabbage. Anyway. Del Martinez Steph yeah, Deal Liz Bisline Josh Brown and Rochelle Rawlings thank you all very much yeah I should say the last part
3: for the storm uh let's pick up with some of the things that we pushed into the storm this week starting with our Giacchino Corner.
2: Yes, Giacchino Corner. Uh Neil, you want to give us Giacchino Corner?
0: Yeah, Giacchino Corner introduces a motif for the Tailies.
3: Oh, those uh, unnaturally right shadowed people end. with clubs.
0: It- right. Well, and what I love about that uh now that we can talk freely about it is that like they really shadow out Mr. Echo, but like the um yeah who's the other woman that's there with uh libby Libby? or
2: cindy no it's cindy Cindy, yeah
0: it is cindy yeah Yeah. (laughs) it's like she's kind of shadowed out but it's like we can't show you this other guy just yet um bernard
2: bernard is also there and he's like um i think they like got someone completely incorrect for bernard right yeah (laughs)
0: because they maybe still had not cast him (laughs) Um. Yeah. So there's a lot going on. Jaquino introduces their their theme, which will obviously become a big thing. Uh. In I guess they really don't show up in force until episode what four of this season?
2: Something like.
0: Or are that. they a big part next week.
2: Uh, I haven't watched next week's so <laughs> episode. <yet. laughs> uh, I think
3: I think you're right, Neil. That it's like four. Or well, because
0: we- we've talked about and we talked about how these sort of three episodes go together. And I feel like that's, you know, once we get to Everybody Hates Hugo is when um, we sort of settle in. Right,
2: because orientation orientation is very hatchy. Um, Right, orientation is very hatchy.
0: And then Jin Michael, Sawyer spend most of the time underground not knowing what's going on. In a
2: pit. Well, don't we get a lot of Michelle Rodriguez next week then, though? Well, we'll find out.
0: Yeah, I don't think we meet her, though, until the end. I don't know. We'll find out.
2: We should, um, we
0: should watch the episode and see what happens.
2: Yeah, we'll watch the episode. But yeah, uh, they got some time to get their tailor <laughs> ducks in a row. Right. Uh, it is interesting
0: that they introduce it here, though, the, the musical theme. I'm not sure why, but that's interesting.
2: Um, before we, well, uh, our usual segment here, which is lock antagonist check-in, uh, is going to be replaced this week by an email from Pat. Is that cool with you, David? It has to do with villains in the show. Oh, yes.
3: Then let's, uh, let's hear from Pat.
2: Okay, Pat says, uh, the undisputed villain of Lost, uh, and then in parentheses, you can dispute this. Um, and then Pat asked us to to save this email until season four, but since that's clearly not happening with my Swiss cheese brain, I apologize, Pat. Uh, we're gonna, we're gonna read it now. (laughs) Dear Lost Heroes. For episodes and episodes, there's been some on and off again uh, discussion if John Locke is the villain on Lost or the antagonist or, I don't know, tragic anti-hero or whatever. Often this leads into the assertion that the true villain of Lost is still on the horizon, usually Ben Linus is referenced or the Lucifer adjacent Man in Black. No doubt those are bad dudes, especially in relation to the flawed but mostly wholesome characters who we root for on the show. But I think that neither Ben Linus nor the Man in Black fully embrace villainy. They are sympathetic aspects... There are sympathetic aspects about them that confound me. Even though Ben is a creepy manipulative tool, I feel sorry for him at times, despite myself. And even though I recognize that the man in black is coded as a villain, and that he makes that he does terrible things, his elemental nature makes me want to put him in uh, into some other category. I think he transcends morality by virtue of his supernatural nature in the way that Reed Richards would argue Galactus is not strictly evil for all you comic book fans. Okay. Okay. Charles Widmore has that classical Tywin Lannister-esque villain feel to him. He's certainly an ass, but he falls in that same zone that Ben Linus inhabits, where I recognize that he's a bad guy, but perhaps not the worst guy. But season four does bring us the worst guy on Lost. Do you guys want to guess really quickly who Pat means?
0: Season four? Ooh.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, that mercenary guy who shoots Ben's daughter. Oh, yeah. Kevin
2: Durant's character. Nailed it. Martin Kimi, played by Kevin Durant, is the worst person on the TV show Lost. This ruthless mercenary embraces villainy in a way that no one else on the show does. His cold-blooded murder of Alex Rousseau was irredeemable. He's so bad that in the extra-spatial extra temporal afterworld that those attuned to the island get to move through in season six Kimi is not part of any redemptive track but instead is instead a classic criminal to be overcome because when it comes to Constance as much as it's Desmond Penny it's also Kimi and being a malefactor now is it possible that Kimi can be the villain of Lost and be dispatched in season four with two seasons to go well maybe if you asked me who the villain of Game of Thrones was the absolute worst person it wouldn't be anyone who made it to season eight it would be Ramsey Bolton who might not have been the existential threat or the primary antagonist but he was just the worst piece of crap thank you for your time best regards pat from maryland so uh what do we think about uh pat's definition of villainy here neil
0: um i mean that guy's definitely bad so that's true um i do think that there are lost does give us characters who almost are primarily one thing eventually this is the the thing about lost is every character is not exactly what you expect until we meet a couple characters who are exactly what they appear to be. Um, so even lost falls into that eventually. And I think Kimi's is one of those where it's like, they just kind of need a bad guy in season four because there aren't really many bad guys, or at least not that we know of yet. Um, so he's, he's a pretty good one. I, but I, I agree with that. I mean, lo- the, the answer for Locke, as we've experienced every week is that it's not that simple.
2: Well, and I think, I think Kime's a good point that it's not that simple with most of the antagonists on the show. And that mm-hmm. Kimi, Kimi is like, uh, you know, whatever. I don't know. What's Kimi's D&D alignment, Dave? <laughs> oh, uh, lawful evil. Lawful evil, right? Uh, so, uh, you know, that's, that's like, uh, it, there's no shades of gray there. And, and like what, why that's such a good moment, not just the sh- like, shock of it, but also just the fact that, um, uh, you know, that Ben is like, oh, I, I, like I hadn't, I didn't come up against this kind of good versus evil yet. You know what I mean? Like th- that's, he would, he was, he thought he was playing a different game. Kimi's playing a different game than the one Ben thinks he's playing. Well, if you want to make I mean? the argument
3: that he is the, villain of the entire series you would have to say that if alex doesn't die there's always a way out for ben of his ultimate fate of being manipulated into killing jacob because if ben doesn't kill jacob that i don't really know you know who else has been rejected that purely by the god figure to to stab him
2: i think most most clearly villainous um not maybe not the villain but most villainous uh, which is maybe sounds like a silly distinction, but I think it's it's where we're circling. What do you think, Neil? Yeah,
3: that
0: makes sense to me.
2: I don't know. I mean, I mean like, does loss have to have a villain? Well, but that's the is whole thing. Also, about the Lost. question we're not answering. That's the whole thing about loss is that like it's about it's about you finding empathy for people like you know even like season one early season one Jin and then you're like oh but misunderstood that guy so like even even an evil cloud of, a nefarious cloud of smoke that does a bunch of bad stuff. In the end, you're like, oh, Titus Welliver. Right, <laughs> right. I'm sorry. Oh, he was try- that's there. like the, magic-, he was trying to- that's the yeah. magic
3: of the television series, but the magic of the island is it draws people there to test them. You know, it's going to bring Locke and Sawyer and uh, real Sawyer all together in a fucking ship like later on. Like, it does have that well, mystical element of testing people. So doesn't there have to be an evil to test the good but
0: isn't that also the thing kind of about kivi and his crew is he's not there to be tested yeah he's just there to he's just there to kill people and be bad he's like well, and, and, and it's like, like that's like a, the whole a, thing about him
2: well and it's a widmore fuck up right like widmore and his like possessive devotion to the island like brought a sickness brought a an evil to the island in yeah. order you know to get his what he wanted so He's or like, he uh, he
3: could fuck with the island. It's like Michael Bean and, uh, the abyss. Where at first you're like, <laughs> this is a professional. And then you're like, oh no, he's got, he's got deep sickness.
2: Did I ever tell you about the podcast I wanted to start a couple years ago called Bean There Done That? About the films of Michael Bean. <laughs> How many, I'm going to guess you would
3: do two episodes before Michael yeah, Bean would call have, you and be like, why am I not on this podcast? Yeah. Why?
0: Why is that not just an article? Why is that not just a podcast hosted
3: by Yeah, Michael why Bean? is he not doing that podcast? Get <laughs> Michael if Michael B's it? listening yes, to the Mike... Storm part of a drift. Give us a call.
2: <laughs> give us a call hey, Michael B, know B. Know we have a project listening. for you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really serious. That's not a joke. I've talked about doing a Michael B podcast.
3: I'm sure nobody's um, pitched him anything called being there done that before.
2: Are you being sarcastic?
3: Yeah, yes. I'm sure somebody's oh. pitched him uh, pun <laughs> titles on his name. What a bummer! All right. I'm sure the uh, mid '90s anyway. were horrible for pitches for Michael Bean.
2: Michael Bean is such like a weird dreamboat. Or as 90s. he would be known on Lost, Michael Bay. <laughs> Bay. Four, four million Bay. Four
3: billion Michael Baines.
0: Um. Yeah. What else happens stormy <laughs> stuff happened oh we wanted to know about um, some top theories people want to know about some theories uh, there was a fun one that I just found that I thought was interesting there's uh, somebody wrote an article big unanswered questions going into season two um, one is who will Kate fall for Jack or Sawyer mm-hmm whoa guys whoa guys why was Locke in a wheelchair this was the question that plagued everybody Um, and mostly who are the others? The others, uh, seem to be a huge fascination and you can see it in this episode where they sort of throw, you know, they throw the tailies in there and make them out to be the others. Um, but you know, I think the fascination around the others is one of those interesting ones because by the time we're done with this season, we're going to have a much better idea of what the others are. Uh,
3: by the time we're done with this season, we're going to have a group defined as the others, but. Right. The others
0: as we've understood them so
3: far. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I am very happy we got through the entire calm section without me freaking out about how happy I was that Locke presses the button for the first time. (laughs) Press the button! This is what the whole season's about. Him in that room pressing that fucking button. It's great. Here we go. Let's
2: well, do it. Well,
0: it's great to... He, you know, oh, he is... becomes
2: a dust jockey again. Oh, bud.
0: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Execute. Um, this is, to me, similar to what I talked about earlier with Harold Perrineau and the way he's so good in that one scene and that otherwise not so great flashback. Um, the moment where Locke stops like pauses and starts asking Desmond questions about what's going to happen is just really great because it's like, Locke's going to do it. Like we know Locke's going to do it. He's going to press that (laughs) button, but I love that. He's still, he's still sort of living on the edge of like, I'm going on faith here. Like he's like, well, what happens if I don't, what's the Island going to do to me? You know, sort of thing. Um, So, uh, lock and the button are obviously a big thing that we're going to get into. Yeah.
2: We should say in the, in the storm because, so because. They snipped the Tampa job, which we heard about in season one. Uh, they snipped the, the Tampa job out of this, um, episode. Uh, that story goes in basically into the long con, which is, we don't get a Sawyer episode till episode 13 of this season because they mm-hmm. had to snip his, his flashback. Um, and the, uh the long con is is the one where he falls in love with uh kim dickens character cassidy who wouldn't um but they had a different actress playing like the mark that he falls in love with uh, i think she's a star trek actress i don't have her name in front of me Um, uh, but kevin dunn who plays gordy in that episode was in the tampa job stuff so it's like really clear that they were just gonna do that story but in tampa but if you want to see there are photos of josh holloway in like real florida gear (laughs) like 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 sunglasses like but like a sort of like jimmy buffett shirt white pants it's great it's some great shit uh there are photos of that online so they shot it we'll just never see the footage because they're never going to release release the tampa job cut uh is what i have to say about that (laughs) but yeah basically um we would have seen like sawyer falling falling for a woman um and is there anything else i wanted to say about the tampa job uh no, uh, but it's referenced later. Uh, Nathan Fillion says character says something about a uh, an ex con in in Tampa or something like that. So, uh you know, there's a lot of mythology around the Tampa job, <laughs> even though we never see it. So. Uh, yeah, and then, uh, like as we
3: said in the column episode, uh, next week we're probably gonna dive into more Hatch thoughts because we will have our orientation film finally. We'll be splicing film together next week, Dave. Yeah, it'll be
2: fantastic. Well, just to
3: see what's missing.
2: If all works out, uh, we are going to have a re- like the perfect guest for this episode, if Whoa. it all works out. Well, wow. oh no matter what, it's going to be a great guest. I was
3: about to just say, don't, don't make me bleep the something that is a false promise, but that was perfect.
2: No, no, no. it's going to no be, no be, be good. It's going to be good. All right,
3: cool. Neil, where are we
2: going next oh, man, week?
3: man, having to bleep
0: something in the storm would be a real next. <laughs> <episode>. yeah, <laughs> that's, that's how deep down the, the rabbit hole we are. Uh,
3: Neil, where are we going next um, week?
0: well, Dave, we're going back down in that hatch, uh, for an episode called orientation. It is a John Locke episode. That's why I say we're going back down in that hatch because we're going to get a lot of John Locke stuff, which I'm sure will turn into a lot of John Locke conversation in the storm like it happens every week.
3: Yes, and finally, our uh, Season 2 theme won't include spoiler bits of dialogue because they are from orientation. <laughs> Great. All right, cool. Uh, until <coughs> next week when we're watching <coughs> films and pressing buttons, <coughs> where can people find you online? Let's start with Joanna Robinson.
2: Oh, you can find me on VanityFair.com. You can follow me on Twitter at JoeWroteThis. I got some great interviews floating out there in the universe. You can hear me listen talk to Tim Blake Nelson of Watchmen over on uh, Still Watching. Or you can t- hear me talk to Lord Dern on Little Gold Men. So, you know, some good, good podcast content for you this week, guys.
3: And Mr. Neil Miller.
0: Well, you know, you can always get me over at Filmschoolrejects.com catch me on Twitter at rejects or at uh, one perfect shot where, yeah, we're sneaking some lost in there. I got some, I actually have a couple from this episode I might pull out. Um, also don't forget to uh, follow our show at storm podcasts and email us hosts at stormpodcast.com If you would like us to uh, answer your stormy or call me questions.
3: And I'm Dave Gonzalez. You could find me on Twitter at DA7E. You could find me on the Fighting in the War Room podcast. You could find me this fall covering The Mandalorian for Thrillist.com. So Star Wars thoughts there. And you could find me every week here on The Storm telling you not to fall down.